This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Today, Americans have access to an overwhelming variety of new products from iPods to hybrid cars. The quality of goods we buy is on average up, while the cost of these items is on average down. But there's a drawback to this progress. In his new book, Super Capitalism, The Transformation of Business, Democracy, and Everyday Life, our guest today, Robert B. Reich, looks at how capitalism has invaded democracy. With chain stores harnessing the power of the consumer, America's towns and cities have suffered a loss of community. Reich was Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and now teaches public policy at the University of California at Berkeley. Robert Reich, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. How are you doing today? How are things up in Berkeley? Uh, Well, unusually cloudy, as a matter of fact. I came out here... Uh, with the expectation that weather was going to be gorgeous, they lured me out here. Uh, it was sort of a, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? A, when when sellers uh, use a, a technique where where they Let's get you see. out and they they make you buy and then they flip on you. Well, yeah. oh, we've had cloudy, rainy days. Anyway, it's beautiful out here. That's Most days it's beautiful. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, well, that's a little trick we play in California. We invite people out here knowing that it's just going to be cloudy, and then well. We ha- we have a good chamber of commerce. Yeah, I'm it's amazing, amazing. <laughs> I'm a, uh, you know, I I I really do enjoy uh, in Northern California. I don't know much about Southern California. People uh-huh. tell me it's a different state. Yeah, uh, but Northern California is uh, is absolutely gorgeous. And University of California Berkeley, I call euphoric state university because <laughs> it is uh, the views are magnificent, students yeah. are great, faculty are great. I can't find anything wrong. Mm, well, my goodness. Well, we we hope you stay. Uh, and in California, you can come to down right to Southern. To yeah, come down to Irvine. Come down to UCI for a while and and uh, help us out here too. Well, I'd uh, love to. Now, now, tell us uh, tell us about super capitalism. Give us an overview of what you mean by that. Uh, super capitalism is a term I use for to describe the super competitive state of capitalism we have. Global high charged turbocharged capitalism, in which every producer, every company is under much more intense competitive pressures than ever before. Uh, That's good for consumers. It's also good for investors because it means that we have greater choice. We have companies that are trying to do whatever they can uh, to lure us and keep us as consumers and investors. uh, And we're getting better and better deals as consumers and investors. Look at the prices of most standard goods uh, and they've plummeted. Look at what we can get from Walmart. Look at how cheaply we can get things from all around the world. Uh, color TVs, uh, you know, they cost uh, 30 years ago, they cost over $1,000 in today's dollars. Uh, now uh, they cost about $200. Uh, the problem is, and investors have done wonderfully well. Look at what's happened to the Dow Jones industrial average over the past 30 years, uh, going from 60 or 600, rather, uh, to over uh, 12,000, 13,000. Uh, the problem is that as citizens, uh, we've done less and less well. Uh, as citizens, uh, the social consequences of capitalism, uh, everything from widening inequality to unstable jobs, uh, main streets that uh, really are being depopulated as retailers take, uh, the big box retailers take consumers away, uh, global warming, uh, you name it, uh, there are 
tremendously difficult, troubling social consequences. But we as consumers and investors don't realize that the great deals that we are getting are often great deals because companies are pushing down wages, they are outsourcing, they are making our jobs less stable, uh, they are reducing our wages, they are causing our globe to warm. Uh, it's almost as if the consumer investor side of our brains is dislodged from the citizen side of our brains. Uh, you know, I go to a uh, I'm a big supporter of independent bookstores, always have been. But then I look at my bookshelves and realize that a lot of those books were ordered online or I got them from a, a chain, one of the big chains at, a, at, a, at an airport because it was convenient. Uh, in so many ways, uh, the consumer investor side of our brains doesn't really interact with the citizen side. And if you look at what's happening nationally or internationally, you see on a much larger scale uh, places like Washington, where democracy is supposed to be undertaken, uh, where our citizen side of our brains is supposed to have at least some voice, actually is overridden by corporations uh, fighting with each other, uh, trying to, again, get better and better advantage in politics, in public policy, so that they can make more money for us as investors or provide better deals to us as consumers. We're speaking with Robert Reich. The book is Super Capitalism. Mike, you're going to say I just w wanted to say, and there's one other advantage that I, I, I didn't hear you mention, and I think it's an important one, and that in addition to all of the advantages that corporations do enjoy, they also have the added benefit of getting many industries get subsidized by the, by the government so they have actually an additional advantage. I, am I correct? In oh, that? absolutely. Corporate welfare, yeah. that is subsidies and tax breaks going to particular companies or particular industries because they have so many lobbyists in Washington getting them uh, for them. Uh, totals, uh, the estimates are 80 to $100 billion a year. Uh, and if you add in all of the military contracts or other contracts that are delivered without competitive bidding, uh, you're up to over $200 billion a year. Uh, this is real money. But even the public policies, even regulatory regulations, uh, you know, companies complain about regulations, but actually most regulations are there because some companies wanted them there to give them a competitive advantage over their competitors. Well, what what are we talking about with farm subsidies? Do you can you? I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but in terms of money, how much does farm subsidies cost? Uh, the latest farm bill was 280 over 280 billion dollars. That would be spread over five years. The actual subsidy part of that farm bill comes to about uh, over five years, 55 billion dollars. Uh, now those farm subsidies do a lot of damage. Uh, they aren't to small farmers. They're to big agribusinesses. And they do damage because it means that uh, developing, well, people in the developing world who rely on agriculture, half of the workers in the developing nations are on farms. Many of them are small farms. Uh, fewer than 2% of Americans uh, get even near a farm. And again, most of it's big agribusiness. In the developing world, they cannot sell their their produce, their agricultural commodities, because we, given the subsidized nature of our farms and our produce, are glutting world markets with low-priced agriculture. Uh, now, that's 
uh, increasing world poverty that is indirectly creating an incentive for a lot of people in those very poor nations to want to immigrate some illegally into the United States. Uh, it's not good for American consumers. We are paying as taxpayers, and we're also paying huge tariffs on farm imports, 18% agricultural imports tariffs in the United States, much higher than any, any other tariffs we pay, which means Americans are paying at the supermarket about $35 billion a year more for the food that we buy than we would otherwise pay without those tariffs. We are getting a double whammy as average Americans were paying as taxpayers for all of these agricultural subsidies and price supports, and then we're paying at the supermarket for the tariffs that make it difficult for us, or very expensive for us, to import all of this, uh, this produce that we could get much more cheaply. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of agribusiness. Yeah. Well, well in, a, in, a very, in, a, in one way, then, what, what I've heard said before is sort of a... a, a bumper sticker approach to uh, summarizing this issue, which is the American government is in the business of socializing cost and privatizing profit. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair statement? Uh, well, we are, we, we're many... certainly socializing the corporations yeah, indirectly I mean. because uh, most of the 70, well, it's now it's about 60,000 lobbyists in Washington. Yeah. Most of them are there uh, because they're representing corporations. And the the richest irony of all of this that I really focus on in the book uh, is that corporations are not people. Uh, they're right. pieces of paper. Right. Uh, they shouldn't even be represented politically because only people should be represented. So we've got 60,000 lobbyists and countless lawyers and public relations people in Washington representing pieces of paper. Now, Mike and I were just talking before the show. Is there any possibility of a legal challenge to that? Because that's how it came about, where, where corporations are considered people. Has anyone ever taken that and, and tried to the, ride the, it? That's the, uh, we, that's the we court certainly case. could, and I recommend in the book a legal challenge to that. The current Supreme Court is not has shown very dramatically that it is not bound by precedent. Uh, and so that we ought to, uh, if this Supreme Court or certainly a future one that may be even more or maybe more responsive to the argument, that if there was ever a time in American history when corporations should not be deemed people, it is now under supercapitalism when they have really uh, no power to raise prices very much because they are competing so sharply with others. They are not people. They don't have a, they don't have, there's no, no such thing as corporate social responsibility. Corporations are not socially responsible. Uh, they cannot be. We shouldn't expect them to be so. Uh, they are, again, pieces of paper without any moral conscience at all. No, the, 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 just to, right, to frame this, just real quickly, I, w I don't want to get into a lot of legal uh, wrangling here, but the court case that we're referring to is the Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, Corporation, which goes back to the 1880s, in which, by some kind of quirk of the uh, the clerk who was filling out the uh, the, the case, who was uh, summarizing the case, it came to be a legal precedent that corporations were entitled to the rights that you and I enjoy as citizens of America, as Natural uh, rights, as opposed to a sort of a juristic right, and, yeah, and it, it was a pure accident. It yeah, should never have occurred. So, it is an absurdity yeah. uh, to to anthropomorphize yeah. uh, the corporation 
is to uh, indulge in, in a very dangerous fallacy. Uh, and it has got us into the notion that uh, corporations uh, should be represented uh, in Congress. They should have all the rights of people. They should be able to pay uh, campaigns. They, they ought to be... Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the greatest irony here is that corporations are running Washington, uh, K Street, lobbyists, basically, under Democrats and Republicans, it doesn't matter, and the financial, big financial corporations are running Washington these days, and corporations aren't even people. Yeah. It, 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 we're, we're speaking with Robert B. Reich, and the book is Supercapitalism, the Transformation of Business, Democracy, and Everyday Life. It is remarkable to the, the degree to which it's sort of uh, accelerated in the last uh, I'd say 20 years or so. It's really become a fact of life in Washington, hasn't it? Yeah, when I went, uh, first went to Washington uh, in the early 70s, there were 7,000 lobbyists. And uh, sometimes they'd, be, uh, they'd pester me and pester me and pester me, and I'd uh, take them across the street in Pennsylvania Avenue to a little uh, seedy sandwich shop called Barney's that was known for its inedible food and its <laughs> cockroaches. And I'd never see the lobbyist again. <laughs> but now, you know, I went back under the Clinton administration. By then, Washington had become a glittering emerald city, uh, rich with uh, beautiful hotels and bistros and restaurants. Uh, the five counties immediately surrounding downtown Washington were among the 20 wealthiest counties in the United States. All that money, all that money over the last 25 years has come from corporations and most, most of it, it's an arms race. You know, Google comes to Washington and buys uh, the services of a platoon of lobbyists a few years ago uh, because why its competitors, Microsoft and Yahoo, are in Washington with their own platoons of lobbyists and lawyers and public relations professionals. And Google says, well, if they're here... We better be here because there are going to be a lot of issues governing antitrust, intellectual property, trade, you name it. If they get a competitive advantage over us in these issues, we are going to suffer. And therefore, the arms race dictates that we be here. It is just an arms race. And like any arms race, uh, we can de-escalate. If citizens get together and they say and demand our democracy back, corporations, actually, I've talked to a lot of CEOs, they say, you know, we don't want to be in this arms race. It's kind of a protection racket. These lobbyists shake us down. They say if, if, if we don't pay for them, somebody else, a competitor, is going to pay for them. Uh, well, let's just get rid of this arms race altogether. Let's get our democracy back. Well, what's the best way to do that? Where do we start with something like that? In the case of farm subsidies, I've got to wonder what would happen if we completely just cut off all farm subsidies, you know, off the bat. Would would we suffer? Would there be a period of readjustment? How do those things come into well, play? Well, there'd be a period of adjustment. A few years ago, somebody came up with a pretty good idea, and that was we gradually reduce farm subsidies. We wean these big agribusinesses off welfare or corporate welfare. Uh, but uh, the farm lobbyists uh, became so powerful once again that uh, that idea disappeared. Uh, look, I'm all in favor. I mean, you want to talk about farm subsidies, but it's, it's not just farm subsidies. It's military contractors right. uh, who are not even subject to the accountability of, of bidding. Uh, it's uh, oil have... companies. They're getting billions of dollars a year. Why oil companies? Oil companies, why should they get billions of dollars of taxpayer money every year? Uh, it's the drug companies who yeah. don't have to, uh, you know, they supply Medicare, Medicaid, government, employees, health benefits, but the law prohibits the government 
from negotiating with the drug companies for lower prices for Medicare and Medicaid recipients, well, why should the drug companies, lobbyists, be able to get that in the law? Why shouldn't the government, representing all of us, be able to use its bargaining power to get lower drug prices? And we could go through every industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem is that, that we as citizens are being, you know, just, just, just overwhelmed, but not listened to any longer. It was not the case 30 years ago. Uh, in standard polls of Americans 30 years ago, Americans asked, do you believe that our democracy works well and that government represents your interests most of the time? Thirty years ago, most Americans said yes. Today, most Americans on the same poll said no. Yeah. Well, that's a rational response. I want to ask you about something that's a little bit obscure in all of this this mix, but I, I think it's, it's an important part of it. And that is, well, who is it that sets... Uh, we have corporations and businesses who make money. They make a profit. They make a healthy profit. But then when you get into the sort of the Wall Street speculation uh, on how, and I don't understand how all this works, but there are businesses that were in the business of setting expectations on profit. In other words, a company can make 10 or 15% on return on its dollar, but if the market says you should have made 20%, they actually su- they suffer consequences of that. How, does, how did that become such an important part of the American business scheme um, that uh, you actually had to not just make money, but you had to meet a, a certain expectation? Uh, well, Wall Street and Wall Street investment bankers and analysts, uh, they look at companies not only in terms of what the companies are doing today and the profits companies are making today, but in terms of the expectations of future profits right. and what drives a, a share price on Wall Street. What determines the price of a share of stock is the expectation of future profits. Now that's the way the economy works. It's perfectly rational because after all, uh, most of those stocks, increasing number, pay dividends and all you have to do is look at the present discounted value of that future dividend stream and if you can do that you can predict pretty well what the price of a stock should be or will be. But it all comes down to that prediction. So now doesn't These ex- days come down to Wall Street analysts uh, trying to predict what a company will make this quarter or next quarter in terms of trying to divine what that company is going to do over the future. And those predictions become enormously important in setting the stock price for all the reasons I just mentioned. But doesn't that accelerate this sort of super capitalism, this sort of desire that to uh, the short-term profit at all costs, and it kind of accelerates this whole we have no long-term outlook. We have, lo- no, we have very little long-term um, uh, goals and expectations and setting. Doesn't it, doesn't it pu- put a lot of pressure on companies to not worry about environmental concerns when they have to make a profit? Well, like it, puts pressure, it puts pressure on companies, but it's not Wall Street that's the villain here. It's you and me. If we have okay. pension plans or 401k plans, you and I indirectly – or maybe directly, if we're going to the computer and trying to move our money, some of those plans allow us to move our money from fund to fund and see where they, it's, that money is returning the, the greatest amount. We are pushing companies because there's so much competition to get our money as investors and also huge competition to get us as consumers now. Uh, we are pushing companies to uh, think 
not about the future, but about the present, uh, to outsource, to destabilize jobs, to reduce the uh, pay of unskilled workers, to fight unions, uh, to... Uh, you know, to, to pollute the environment, because we as consumers and investors love great deals. And now that the economy is global and it's high technology uh, that permits more and more competitors to get in there, we have greater and greater choices. So you and I, as consumers and investors, are pushing companies to be more competitive, pushing companies to give us greater and greater deals, pushing companies to take a shorter and shorter view of the future, pushing companies to be less and less what we might term responsible. But to blame companies for all of this misses uh, the, essence, the essential ingredient of, of who's actually pushing companies to do all of this. I, I mean, nobody puts a gun at our heads and say, we have to shop at Walmart. Americans flock to Walmart because there are great deals at Walmart. And the great deals at Walmart are coming from... Uh, the suppliers of Walmart, and those suppliers of Walmart are pushing wages down and outsourcing abroad, and even when they have uh, subcontractors in Asia are saying to those subcontractors, we want those prices down, and we don't care if you uh, hire children who are working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. We are the ones who are pushing all of this. Right. It, it does come to, down to an uh, there's an accountability that, that there's something missing in all of this, which is, I'm sure, what you're... What you're talking about in your book, and by the way, let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Robert B. Reich, and the book is Super Capitalism. We've lost the sense, or it seems that we're, it's slipping away, our, our sense of accountability for what goes on in business here and what, and what we can do to affect it. Well, what I say in the book uh, is that really we have split brains, most of us. Yeah. Uh, we have consumer investor sides. I mean, a lot of your listeners get on the, the Internet uh, and look for cheap flights, uh, or uh, order books online. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that, but people ought to know that the consequence of doing that is you are undercutting the wages of unionized airline workers, for example. Uh, you are closing independent bookstores every time you order online. There are a lot of things that we do. We don't think about the social consequences because it's so convenient for us as consumers and so convenient for us as investors now to get great deals we don't think about what the consequences of the great, those great deals are. The only place where the trade-offs, the tensions between what we want as consumers and investors and what we want as citizens can be addressed really is the democratic process where the rules of the game are created. If we want Walmart to provide better wages, uh, well, we've got to have a law that says that. Otherwise, Walmart is going to do exactly what Walmart is doing. It has to. Walmart is in competition with Target, with a lot of other big box retailers. If Walmart uh, suddenly raised its wages or its health care benefits and nobody else did, Walmart would be losing market share. If we want to change all of that, we've got to have a law. But we can only have a law on the books if democracy uh, is reflective of what we want as citizens. Well, we've got time for one more question here, and uh, I'm going to ask it. Where's, where's the optimism in this? Where is the, the one point where you feel that we could really make a difference right now? Is there, is there an area that we should uh, concentrate on, or is this just all across the board? Well, it, 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 my optimism comes from my understanding that America, when it understands the nature of a problem, when we, get, when we define the problem right, we usually roll up our sleeves 
and we get on and we solve the problem. We did that, uh, well, in, in the 19, uh, 1905, 1910, 1920, uh, progressives uh, took democracy back from the urban machines because people understood that how important democracy was. In the 1930s and 40s, we rolled up our sleeves, regardless of our ideology, and we got on uh, fighting the Depression and World War II. Uh, you know, uh, in the 1960s, uh, when we understood uh, that the environment was endangered, we, in, we, we rolled up our sleeves, we passed the Environmental Protection Act for clean air, clean water. Uh, we do these things. The problem is if we, if we are misled by mythologies, such as Walmart is evil, or Starbucks is good, or corporations can be made socially responsible simply because we want them to be, or politics uh, is really uh, dirty, and we don't want to get involved in politics. Let's just hold our nose. It's just uh, it's something that we shouldn't even in- engage in. Uh, these mythologies prevent us from taking the action we need to take as citizens, joining together as citizens. Believe me, I was in Washington. I know the power that even a relatively small group of citizens joined together, genuinely seeking change, can have, because politicians don't see citizens. They see corporate lobbyists. Politicians are scared when they see that citizens actually are organized and want something, want democracy cleaned up. And I'll tell you one final cause for optimism. Corporations and CEOs don't want to pay the protection money, the extortions that lobbyists are demanding of them. During the McCain-Feingold debate over that which was the last lobbying and, and f- corporate uh, the finance reform, campaign finance reform bill we have, we've had, a lot of CEOs were supportive because they all got together and said to themselves, we are all in this arms race. The lobbyists are coming to us and extorting money. We don't want to pay all of this money for lobbyists in Washington. We're only doing it because our opponents, our rivals, you guys in the same room, are trying to get lobbyists. Uh, let's all de-escalate. Let's, let's disarm, mutual disarmament. Well, we can do that on a much greater scale. Well, that's, that is, uh, that's reason to be that's hopeful. Right. I hope, hopefully change from within this, uh, what I see as a corrupt uh, kind of uh, lobbying system. Uh, I hope that we do see some reform in that. I want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. Robert B. Reich, the book is Capital- Supercapitalism, the transformation of business, democracy, and everyday life. Thank you so much for being here well, today. Well, Mike and Nathan, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Bye-bye. Care. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.